Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today. I'm very thankful for the worship team and how they prepared our hearts for this moment looking at the Word of God. You know, I suspect that if I took a survey, uh, I wouldn't have a very difficult time figuring out how many people want the year 2020 to end and 2020 to begin, especially if 2021 can mean some new things. Uh, the extroverts are ready for 2020 to end. The introverts kind of think it was pretty cool that we could hang out together in this way. But the real question as we draw to the end of another year is to ask ourselves, even though we'd like to see it end, it's, it's time for an assessment. As God peers into your soul and mind at the end of a difficult year, what does he see? Has this year with all its trials and ordeals drawn you closer to God? Or are you pretty much walking the same way you were a year ago with nothing changed? Or have the difficulties perhaps that we have all faced in this year even caused you at times to go so far as to question whether or not God exists? How would you compare the state of your walk with the Lord if you were walking with him in 2019 with how this year ends in 2020? But speaking of going into a new year, wouldn't it be great to have some clarity from God himself going into 2021? Wouldn't that be something we could really all benefit from? What if you could know with certainty that God was with you as you go into the coming year? Well, you can, but what is it that we need here at Woodside as we live in perhaps some of the most divisive days of our times? How can we live lives marked by clarity with no reserve, no retreat, and no regret as we try to serve our Lord? For an answer, turn with me in your digital phone or your Bibles or however you do it to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verse 11. And here we will see together that as we obediently draw near to God, he draws near to us in blessing. As we obediently draw near to God, he draws near to us in blessing. Read the words of the Apostle Paul. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. I'd like to begin with the second half of that verse. The God of love and peace will be with you. Don't we all want to be Mark in 2021 with the idea that the God of love and peace is with us? For however much we struggled in this year, it may have felt at times that he was not with us. God is characterized by love and peace. These are two of his attributes. More, these are the gifts that God brings about because of who he is in accordance with his nature. God is not only characterized by these traits, he also actually imparts these traits to empower believers to do the things that Paul is bringing before the church at Corinth. But I want you to observe something about the recipients of these two letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians. 
These are people who have been behaving badly. <laughs> people who have been behaving very, very badly. In fact, I used to teach a course in 1 Corinthians called Pastoral Issues in 1 Corinthians because in going through the book, you can find just about every single problem that'll come up in a church, barring a pandemic. <laughs> and because it was a good way to prepare people to prepare for ministry and looking at it. The only way that they're going to have strength to do anything any differently than the way they've been doing it is if God is with them, the God of love and peace is with them. And Paul knows this, and he reminds them of the things that he wants them to do in order that they would do them. Not that God won't be there if they don't. He also assures them of that. But when he is with them in their disobedience, how much more will he be with them when they are obedient? You see, there's a wonderful lesson, even in this first verse, as Paul closes out the book. We do not shape up and then get the blessing. And this is characteristic of God and how he works. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't wait for you to get your act together and said, okay, they're acting well, I'll die for you. No, Jesus died for you and the blessing came in spite of your behavior. And it's similar right here. We can receive the blessing from God. But again, if God is with us in our moral victories as well as our moral failings with his presence and peace, how much more will he be with us when we draw near to him with our lives and our behavior is on track with what he wants for us in the first place? It's a good way to plan for the, the future. It's a principle so profound that it's basic. There are things that you can control and there are things that you can't control. But one of the things that scripture puts very squarely on your shoulders and mine is how we respond to our sin. The Bible very clearly makes it the point that we are sinners and that we need to stop sinning. <laughs> but he puts the responsibility, he puts the onus upon us. One of the things that scripture then presents is that as under our control is our sin habits, breaking our sin habits, breaking the power of sin in our lives is, part, is not optional for us because everything Jesus did on the cross in dying for sin and in his resurrection applies to you and to me. He died for sin. I died to sin. He was raised victorious. I, too, was raised victorious with him. But do I believe it? More than that, do I act as though it were true? If I want God to draw near to me, I need to do what God asks me to do. But what is it that he asks him to do? Well, first thing he teaches us is that if we draw near to God and do the things that assure he will be with us, the time to act is right now. Paul instructed the Corinthians five things should mark their behavior as he returns to them. Now, if you know the Corinthians, you know how patently absurd this is, how utterly impossible his counsel must have seemed to them. All you have to do is read through the first couple of chapters in 1 Corinthians, and you realize that the Corinthians were playing favorites. They were saying things like, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter. 
And they are rallying around party spirit as though Jesus Christ were not the one who died for them, but men had. And then their behavior catapulted into all kinds of catastrophic things in terms of their walk with the Lord. Sexual immorality, abusing the Lord's table, all of these things mark the church at Corinth in their behavior. These are the things that Paul says to stop doing. The Corinthians, though, were a tough bunch. They had a strong tolerance for what is immoral, and they are selfish, celebrity-centered. Groups in the church are trying to get the upper hand over others in the fellowship. They squabble constantly, and they exhibit a near-consistent disregard for one another. Sounds like a great church, right? As Paul Harvey used to say, they're constantly getting back to abnormal. Now, we may not want to admit it, but believers today face many of the same difficulties in their walk with the Lord, and in fact, many churches exhibit some of the same behaviors that the Corinthians did. Members of God's family, how might 2021 look different if we took Paul's counsel to the Corinthians and planned to do as he says here? First of all, rejoice without reserve or without qualification. You know, it seems kind of odd that Paul says he has to command rejoicing. It's like I say to you, be happy, <laughs> be joyful. How do I command joy? Seems counterintuitive. He says, be joyful despite the days you live in. Rejoicing Christians, though, know something. They realize something about this life and its ups and its downs. They realize that all of these things are under God's sovereign control. And because God is in control, because God is not surprised by anything that occurs before us, we can trust him to work all things, as Paul says in Romans, together for good. God wants his believers to be overflowing with joy. So while the Old Testament tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength, the New Testament tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You know, actually, joy or rejoicing comes pretty naturally to most of you. I've been out there in the foyer, and I've heard you talking about your favorite sports teams and how they won. And I've watched you losing your joy when they lost. <laughs> I've seen grandparents take out their wallets and show photos of their grandchildren to other people, expressing the joy that is there. But people in the church need to be rejoicing. But what we rejoice in is the Lord. And we ought always to be talking about him, always delighting in him. It's natural to us. We make public what we delight in. And we need to express our joy. God desires joy for us. God desires joy in us. However good your team is, It'll lose eventually, but God wants you to be joyous. Secondly, he says, set things right with others as you become aware of them. The idea of setting things right comes from that word restoration that is used in the ESV. Actually, it's a word that is used in Greek in a number of different contexts. One way it can be used of a net that has holes in it being restored to its useful function. So fishermen, as they got holes in their net, would repair them. And they use that same word, restoration. 
It's also used of the resetting of a broken bone. But the idea is that of setting things right that are not right. And this is a problem that we have as believers. I know believers that will come into a church like this and will sit on this side of the building so they don't have any chance of meeting somebody on that side of the building with whom they have an issue that they've never effectively dealt with. And Paul says, rejoice, but then set things in order, set things right. Believers are about restoration because God is about restoration. God is about setting things in order, and we too ought to be setting things in order. Thirdly, find and encourage what brings comfort or mutual support in our lives. You know, flatter me and I may not believe you. Criticize me and I may not like you. Ignore me, I may never forgive you. But encourage me and I'll never forget you. According to Hallmark, 90% of consumers want more choices in the encouragement cards that will allow them to express support in unique ways in real life situations. Where is your heart these days? Where is your heart? As you talk to other believers, are you saying what is beneficial, what is edifying to them, what builds them up? Anybody can tear others down, but not everyone can build others up. It doesn't take a genius to destroy something, but it does take some know-how to construct something that will be of use. Does your speech, do your actions bring comfort to others? You know, I'm amazed in this season at the lack of charity, not from non-Christians toward Christians. That's always been there. People have always been hostile about the gospel and about the message that seems to imply that there ought to be a change in your behavior. But I'm amazed at the lack of charity that Christians are showing for one another in this season. You voted for who? And they judge, no charity. And they continue the arguments into the church as though this is where they belong. As though they believe that scripture somehow does not apply to them when Paul says, encourage one another. Next he says, find ways to agree with one another on God's priorities is how I would put it. Literally, he says, I want you to think the same thing. <laughs> well, that sounds like a bunch of mind-numbed robots. No. <laughs> he wants you to think the same things that are true from Scripture. Let your mind be set on God's priorities, not your own personal agenda and priorities. It's the same attitude that Paul was looking for in Philippians 2 as he was struggling with Euodia and Syntyche and their relationship with one another. He wanted believers to agree on God's priorities and work on them together. You know, the huge redwood trees in California are considered the largest living things on earth. Uh, the oldest among them, they think, are about 2,500 years old by core samples they've taken. And they're over 300 feet in height. You might suppose that those redwood trees are so tall because they have a very deep root system. However, if you go over there to California 
and you go on the tour, they will tell you that they don't have a deep root system at all. Rather, each of the trees interlocks its root, and together they form a network that allows them to stand and grow that 300 feet tall. Too many Christians are digging deep in the dirt trying to avoid one another when they should be interlocking with other Christians. And then we will rise up and the, church, the world will see what the church has to offer in Jesus Christ. Comfort one another. Encourage one another. Rejoice without reserve or qualification. Set things right as you become aware of them. Find and encourage what brings mutual support. Find ways to agree with one another on God's priorities. And then focus at living at peace with one another. That makes sense. If you're thinking the same thoughts, if you're rejoicing, it's hard to be negative around a person who's always rejoicing and happy. Have you noticed that? Live at peace with one another. Now, who would want to join a church where people are always rejoicing, uh, where people are always about setting out things right, where there's conflicts between them. Who wants to join a church like that? Where this guy had a conflict with this guy, but th between the two of them, they worked it out. Uh, who wants to go to a church where the right kind of encouragement is there whenever you need it? Um, who wants to go to a church where people think healthy thoughts about things that really matter? In case you haven't picked up, I'm being sarcastic. My main two spiritual gifts are cynicism and sarcasm in that order. No, God, who would join that kind of a church? Well, some of you may be coming to this church because you say, that's what I found here. I found at least some of the people or many of the people in this place strive toward these behaviors that Paul is talking about. If that's you, praise the Lord. Maybe some of you are looking for a church where that is true, my prayer is that in 2021, we become that church. That no one has any doubts. That when you come here, people are rejoicing. They're happy to be here. They're rejoicing in their walk with the Lord. They're celebrating the victories that they're seeing in their God. More than that, they're comforting one another. They're encouraging one another. They're setting things right. And they're living at peace. Who wouldn't? want to be a part of that church. Now, if these are the things that we need to do and God will be with us, what else do we need? Well, we need healthy relationships with each other. That's the point of the next two verses, verses 12 and 13. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss and all the saints greet you. And you might pass over those very quickly but what Paul is pointing out to the Corinthians is that God's will is furthered when we foster healthy relationships with each other. God, when God is having his way with us, we have healthy relationships with one another. This idea of greeting one another with a holy kiss, uh, you may think of what goes on over in Italy, or maybe you're from an Italian family, where they kiss on both cheeks. In the early church, the holy kiss was quite often associated with the Lord's table and was restricted to members of one's own gender. But the idea was, whether it was a fist bump or a hug or whatever was appropriate social distancing, they greeted one another with a holy kiss. Their outward actions 
displayed a genuine inner affection. It was a holy kiss. Nothing fake, nothing impure about it. More than that, he goes on to say, all the saints greet you. And as Paul is writing this letter, he is at Philippi, we think. At least that's a pretty strong possibility, depending how you uh, time uh, the travels of the Apostle Paul. So he writes from Philippi back to Corinth, and we know that at Philippi, in that church, there were struggles. But there was a, a sense that we are all part of something greater. And that greatness is found in our greeting of one another. You can tell when people like one another. You ever been in a room and just watched as somebody got up to speak and watched the contempt in someone else's eye? Ever seen that? It's true amongst believers as well. Paul says that God's will is furthered when we foster healthy relationships with one another. But then look at the way he closes his letter to the Corinthians. He says that God's will is not only furthered when we foster healthy relationships with one another, it's furthered when we foster our fellowship with the persons of the triune God. The irony is that we need to do the things that ensure God's presence with us so that he can be fully present in our lives in order to do them. When God draws near, there is grace, there is love, there is blessing, there is peace. And he puts it this way in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, Paul concluded this writing to a church that had been threatened by fake spirituality, internal strife, that was at times even at odds with him as an apostle. And he ends his letter to them by pronouncing a blessing. They needed to remember the grace of the Lord Jesus. They needed a fresh look at the Father's love and a challenge to walk in the fellowship that is promoted by the Holy Spirit, in the communion that comes amongst the saints of God when they obey and walk in light of the truth that they know. Paul, in this last verse in his letter, actually switches his usual language about grace and love. Perhaps most often we speak of the grace of God and the love of Jesus, but here he speaks of the grace of God that we know in Jesus Christ laying down his life on the cross at Calvary and rising again on the third day. The reason he does this is probably experiential. Most of us came to know who God is by coming to know who Jesus is. That is to say, we first came to know the grace of Jesus in our life because Jesus died for us. And when we understood that, we began a journey on which we began to know more and more of what the depth of God's love was for us. And so he gives an experiential kind of thing. We encountered grace, forgiveness, and help that are in no way deserved. But if God will draw near to us in blessing, when we draw near to him in fellowship, how do we draw near to such a God? I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about that. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. For many Christians... The Trinity is more of an abstract principle 
a confusing doctrine they believe, although they're not sure why in their most honest moments. They know it is important, yet the fact of the matter is very little is taught about the nature of the Trinity. But Paul thought it was important when addressing the church to remind them of the Trinity at the very end of his letter. And that is because for us to be successful in 2021, just like for the Corinthians to be successful moving forward, everything we need to know is present in the members of the Trinity. That's hard to think about because usually it's something we don't think about. Many Christians are functionally non-Trinitarian. I don't mean anti-Trinitarian. They don't deny the doctrine. But the doctrine has no impact on their world, their work, their prayer, or their worship, except when they sing a praise song. And then they know they're singing to God, but they don't understand what is being said. The Trinity, though, serves as a model for the church. For as there are three persons united in the Godhead, all of whom are equally God, God is one with respect to his being. He is three with respect to his persons. That in respect to which God is one, his being, he is not three, his persons. That in respect to which God is three, his persons, he is not one, his being. In other words, there's no contradiction to say God is three and one. We're not saying God is one and three at the same time and in the same sense. Rather, we're affirming something important about the doctrine of the Trinity, about the nature of God. And the nature of God is to impact the way that we live. I'm just going to emphasize two points, though there could be many more that would be raised. The first point is the fact that we would not know what love really is if it were not found in God, because all things that were created were created by God. So for love to exist in the world... God must possess love within his being, correct? In other words, love wasn't something that originated. It's not like God was sitting down and said, you know, I'd like to love, but there's no one to love. And so I, th I think I'll create people. I need to create people. No, no such thing is taught in Scripture. Rather, in the eternal fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there has always been love exhibited between the three persons of the Trinity. And so when God did create man, not out of any need to do so, love was already a possibility in the world. That's something you don't have in Islam. That's something you don't have in other forms of world religions. So it's just his love. Secondly, the foundation of the value and dignity of all believers, regardless of their gender, regardless of their training, rests in similar values that are found within the Trinity. From the Trinity, we learn that equality of essence does not require a conflict of inferi inferiority in roles. Let me just put that into plain English. God the Father sent the Son. If the Father sends the Son, is the Son less than the Father in his being as God? No. The Son and the Father send the Spirit. If the Son and the Father send the Spirit, does that mean that the Spirit is somehow inferior to the Father and the Son because he has a role or a function that he carries out? No, that's not what Scripture teaches. 
because it says in Ephesians 4.30, for example, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If the Holy Spirit is an object or a thing and not a person, it's like a tree or a rock. You can sing bad music to a rock all day and it won't care. <laughs> but if the Holy Spirit is a person, he can be grieved. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the, in the economy of Scripture, in the unfolding of the drama of redemption, each do different things. They have a different role. But that having a different role does not make one inferior to the other. And so it is within the church. And so it is within biblical manhood and womanhood. A husband and a wife have roles. The wife has a role. The husband has a role. The wife is not inferior to the husband. Peter reminds us as husbands that our prayers will be hindered if we're grieving our wives, right? Because they are co-heirs of the grace of life. In other words, we have ontological in our being equality by our existence. And the same is true in the order of the roles of the church. God ordained men to be pastors. That is, he gave that role to men. Doesn't mean that women couldn't preach. Doesn't mean that women can't teach. In fact, in many cases, I've had female students teach better than some of my male students. But why do we restrict the role of men to the pastor? Because God says to do it. That is the economy. Doesn't mean that women are in any way inferior. Do you see how practical the doctrine of the Trinity is? When you start to think about it, everything necessary for godliness and life is found in the triune God. Everything that you need to go into 2021 with confidence. So my friends, as you enter 2021, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May the love of God be with you. And may the Spirit commune with you. And may you know in all of its fullness what that means. If you have not begun a relationship with Jesus Christ, there will be some people up here after the service ready to talk to you about it. It would be our privilege to lead you to an understanding of Jesus. If you're online, uh, please check the connect box. Ask to talk to somebody about what it means to place your faith in the triune God. Can I close our time together in prayer as we invite the worship team back down? Father, thank you for the grace that we have received. As John wrote, and grace upon grace. We need it because we are a sinful people. In the reality of our hearts, as we look within, at the close of another year, we think of resolutions broken. We think of promises not kept. We think of failures in our moral life. We are thankful that at those moments, there is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, empowering us, enabling us to rejoice, to set things in order, to comfort, to encourage, and Father, even to live in peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We'd love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org contact to introduce yourself today.